Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So I just want to welcome you guys back this morning to our uh, short series titled uh, uh, The Lion and Lamb, a, a look at who Jesus is. And uh, as we've been talking about, we're, we've been taking a short break from Romans to spend some time really to think through and wrap our heads around, you know, an important foundational is, uh, issue of the gospel, uh, which is the character and the nation of, I mean, nature of Christ. Um, we're actually going to spend a couple of weeks looking at who Jesus is and why that's important to us. And uh, because the truth is the identity of Christ, who he is, is essential to our faith. Um, because as, again, as we talked about, Christ is the one who, who bridges the chasm that lays between God and man. He is the one who brings us together. He is the one who, that is our hope. And he and only he can save us from our sin and the wrath of God. Because only he is the one that can reconcile us back into that relationship that we were created for. And so who Jesus is in character and in his nature is central to our faith. And, and it's because of that that we must really come to know and understand who he is in a personal way. That we must know him intimately, like we know those that we love. Not just intellectually, not just head knowledge. We must know Jesus personally and, and not just some character named Jesus. We must know the real living Son of God. And not only must we know him, but then we must come to that place where we move ourselves to faith in him, where we are trusting in him and the promise that he has made to redeem us. We must believe and have faith that he will do what he has promised and that his work that he's accomplished is sufficient to save us. Now, in the first part of the series, we talked about the truth that Jesus is truly God. He is eternal. He is uncreated. He's the creator of all things. And he himself, by his own power, sustains the universe. And he came on a rescue mission to save us. That God himself came to save us. And so foundational to our understanding of Christ and our understanding of the gospel is the fact that, that Jesus himself is God. And anyone who denies Christ is God just doesn't know him. They don't know him. Now, with that, there's an important distinction we talked about. Jesus is God, but he is also the second member of the Trinity, which means he is distinct from God the Father. Jesus is God the Son, which means he is different from God the Father. And not only is he not the God the Father, but he's not God the Holy Spirit either. He is a member of the, of the Godhead. And, and just like the divinity of Christ is foundational to the gospel, so is our understanding that, that, that there is one God who, who exists in three persons. We must hold firm to and, and believe in the triune nature of God. And so Jesus is God, but he is also God the Son. But he is still God in all his fullness. And then last week we talked about how Christ is not only God, he is fully man as well. God the Son came into the world to took on a full human nature to become like us. He came in the world to be with us. 
But I don't know about you, but that is a truth that just encourages me. It gives me hope. And this is important for us because Jesus, you know, the Son of God, when he became man, he became man in his in the fullness of what it means to be a man, except for sin. Right? Which means that he knows exactly then what it is that we go through. That he knows how we feel. That by itself is worth the price of admission. I don't know about for you. The fact that the Savior of the world, that God who created the universe, came into the world to know what it's like to be you. He understands. Jesus, in his humanity, experienced human limitations. He experienced physical pain. He experienced emotional pain. And it's because of that he can truly identify with us. And, and it's because of that, that he can identify with us that, 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 we, that, that he was able to live for us and live for our righteousness. Also, Christ in his humanity tore down the barriers between people. What an important truth for us to hold on to in a world that's continually dividing itself. In his humanity, Jesus tore down the barriers that separate us, barriers like race and ethnicity and sex and economic statuses and family relationships and, and even, even our addictions and sin. Jesus became an example of how we too can love our neighbor, even the ones that are hard to love. But more importantly, Jesus came also to be the Messiah, right? The, the Christ, the anointed one. Jesus was the promised one in the Old Testament who would come into the world and make all things new, all things right. The one that people, the people of God in the Old Testament looked forward to by faith. The thing that we hold on to as God's people is that all of God's people are saved on, the, uh, saved on the same basis, faith in Christ. But the ones in the Old Testament didn't have him yet, but they look forward to the promise of him coming, and we look back in faith. Jesus, the Messiah, is the one who came to make peace between mankind and God. In fact, as we said, Jesus, again, is the, the bridge between God and man. He is the one who, who brings us together. We have no idea really how big the chasm is that, that lays between us and God because of our sin. But Christ is the one who brings us together. You see, our greatest problem and our greatest need is not money, though there are times it might feel like it. And our greatest problem isn't who may or may not win the next election. Now hear me, elections are important and those things have impacts on our lives, but ultimately that is not the greatest issue that we're gonna ever face, right? And our greatest problem is, is not that us being affirmed in our feelings or validated for our feelings. Our greatest problem isn't that somebody might offend us. Our greatest problem isn't even hunger or war. Our greatest problem is that we have been created by God for a special relationship with him, but that because of our transgression and sins, that relationship has been completely destroyed. That there is a gulf between God and man, and we are completely helpless and hopeless on our own to do anything about it. But Jesus is the one who came into the world to, to span that chasm. And he is the one that makes it possible for God and us to be restored in our fellowship, the fellowship that we were created in his image 
for. And, and, and the word that many people use for this that Jesus does, including our own confession, is mediator. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. Now, mediator today, I think, you know, in our context, sometimes has kind of a bad word, especially like in divorce proceedings. When you when there's a divorce proceedings, mediators typically mean there's somebody that you don't know is in the middle of your business, right? Or like when uh, when you have a, a grievance with a company and you find out that you signed a little thing that says that you have binding arbitration rather than going to court, uh, and then there's a mediator who then you know is a disinterested party who's just basically trying to fix things. Well, in this case, Jesus being the mediator means something wonderful for us. Jesus is the mediator between God and us. He's the one who, who makes peace between us. Easton's Bible Dictionary defines a mediator as one who intervenes between two persons who are at variance with a view to reconcile them. Right? You see, it's not simply just about um, actually you know, finding a compromise. It's about reconciliation. That's why Jesus was sent in the world to be the mediator and to bring reconciliation. And the word reconciliation with itself carries with it a big meaning. For example, when you have family, parents and children, children and grandchildren, aunts and uncles, people that you're close to, when you find that those relationships get torn or broken, you don't want... You're not after simply that you can stand each other's presence at Thanksgiving where you kind of look at each other sideways, but, but you can at least be in the same room. That's not what you're after. What you're after is reconciliation, restoration in that relationship. You're, you're after those parts to come back together to where that there's real love again. That's what Jesus came to, to bring. He came into the world to be our mediator. And by the way, that has been the, the plan since eternity past. It is in the covenant of redemption, God the Father ordained the redemption of his people. And Christ agreed by his own will to come and purchase that redemption, to pay our redemption. And he came in the world and took on a human nature so we could then be reconciled as family back to God. And that was accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus is the one who reconciles us to God, and, and, and he's the only one that can reconcile us. Church, if there's a, tr a truth that you walk out of here knowing today or remembering today, only Christ can reconcile you to God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us to the message of reconciliation. Christ is the, the object that brings reconciliation. Now, we certainly get to participate in that by sharing the gospel, but what we do is what do we, we point people to Christ and him alone. God sent Christ and Christ alone to reconcile fallen, broken sinners to himself. If you need hope today, 
If you need some, some uplift today, I want you to understand that the sovereign God of the universe who is holy, righteous, and just sent his son into the world to do for you all the things that you couldn't do for yourself so that you can be reconciled back to him. If you need a little sense of, of what you mean to God, that's it right there. He sent his son to die for you so you could be reconciled. God sent Christ to do that, and only Christ alone. Again, Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for us all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. Jesus is the one and only mediator. Only he can bring us to God. And I want to be clear about this because there's no other mediator available. There is no other way. No one else in heaven or in, on the earth can reconcile you to God. Right? Pastors cannot reconcile you to God. Right? There are a lot of celebrity pastors in the world around us. There are a lot of YouTube pastors that are really, really famous. Some of them are really faithful and good, and I, and I would certainly encourage you to listen to them, but there's a lot of wolves out there. But I'm going to tell you, even the best of the best, even the most, most orthodox in their teaching, they cannot reconcile you to God. Priests cannot reconcile you to God. Charismatic leaders cannot reconcile you to God. Muhammad cannot reconcile you to God. Buddha cannot reconcile you to God. Not Krishna, not Michael the archangel, not Joseph Smith, nor any of the saints. And not even the Virgin Mary can reconcile you to God. No one, there is not anyone, there is no person or created thing that can bring you into the presence of God, but Christ himself. No one else can span the chasm of our sin. And this is essential to our faith. This is something that we must hold on to and hold on to dearly because anyone who believes that there is another mediator doesn't know Christ. Anyone who trusts in anyone else to bring us to God is not in Christ. As we say again and again and again, on the back wall, even it says, you were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and in no other. Only Jesus can be our mediator. I want to say that again so that no one will ever think that all roads lead to heaven or that there are many paths to God, there is only one and one only mediator, as Jesus himself has stated. He says in John chapter 14, verse 6, as explicitly as anything Jesus has ever said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Only Christ can be our mediator because only he meets those qualifications. Only he can be everything that we need to be restored in a relationship with God. Remember, salvation is so much more than just God going, all right, guys, I forgive you. It's not a big deal. Let's just sweep all that stuff under the rug. Salvation involves a lot more than that. The penalty of our sin is greater than that. The horrific nature of our rebellion against God is greater than that. There's a whole lot more to what we need to be saved than that. That's why Jesus 
had to be the go-between between us and God. And so Jesus is the only one who is, the, who is everything that we need to be saved. He is everything you need to be saved. You see, not only is Jesus fully God and fully man, Jesus as a man represents us and stands before God in our place. I don't know if you've ever really thought about that. We think about him and we glorify him. Do we, we, do we ever think about the fact that the reason why he lived the way he did is that he actually stands in our place before God and as such he offers the righteousness that he earned to us so that we can be righteous when we stand before God. And not only that, then he atones for our sins so we can be, be, be blameless before God. You realize if you're in Christ, when you step across into eternity, when God sees you, he doesn't see all of your sin and your failures and all the ways that you fall short. He sees the perfect righteousness of his son that you're holding on to by faith. That you are perfected in the eyes of God, not because of what you've done, but what he has done. Jesus represents mankind to God, and Jesus represents God, the Father, to us. That Jesus came to show us what the Father is like in His grace and His love and His long-suffering and His compassion for us. In the plan that He has to bring us into the family. Remember what, what, what John said, but all to who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He, Jesus, gave the right to become children of God who were not born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so not only is Jesus fully God and fully man, and as such, he is everything we need to be reconciled to God, and our confession of faith does a really good job, I think, of defining for us what it is that we actually need. In chapter 8, paragraph 1 of the confession, we read these words. God was pleased in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, according to the covenant made between them to be the mediator between God and humanity. God chose him to be a to be, the, be prophet, priest, and king. As a mediator, Jesus is everything we will ever need. And the scriptures and the confession tell us among the things that we need to be restored in a relationship with God is that we need a prophet, we need a priest, and we need a king. God, as, as, as part of his plan of redemption, gave to his people the gift of these three offices, three important functions to restore mankind back into fellowship with him. The office of prophet, priest, and king. And throughout history, there have been men that have been appointed to these offices to help God's people to grow in their understanding of God and to look forward by faith to the one who would come to make all things right. He's the only one. And one day, unlike these men, he would fulfill not just one of these roles. He would fulfill all three of them, all three offices, not just one of them, but all of them. Jesus, what you understand, is all you will ever need. By the way, these offices right, are important to us. They're things that are accomplished that, that we need done for us. 
Right? There are several functions that, that are required to restore us to God, like the office of the prophet. A prophet is someone who reveals God and his will. Now, many people today, especially those who tend to get obsessed with, with end times things, well, they will think that a prophet is someone who just predicts the future. A lot of people think that. When you say prophet, they think, oh, that guy is going to talk about the future. They think that of someone who's like a fortune teller, someone who speaks in cryptic language or in riddles in order to give allusions to events that might come in the future. Many people think with the term prophecy that it means prediction. But the truth is, a prophet, though he may give insight into the future, and he may certainly talk about the future, a prophet is someone who was ordained by God to speak for God. A prophet was someone appointed by God to declare to his people who he is and what it is that he requires. Prophets spoke the word of God, and that is why the most common saying in the Bible with respect to what prophets speak is what? Thus saith the Lord. Prophets were men appointed and anointed to declare the word of God that God has revealed to God's people. And yes, at times, it was certainly about the future, but most of the time, it was about God and his relationship to his people. God pouring out his heart to his people. And, and the Old Testament is filled with the writings of the prophets. Prophets like Elijah and Ezekiel, men who, who God raised up at different times to declare the word to the people. But the Old Testament is also filled with other writings that are prophetic. These were prophetic references throughout the, the, the historical books of the Old Testament. I, mean, I don't know if you realize, but Moses, we think of Moses as the leader who led people out of the, the wilderness, I mean, out of captivity, but we, don't, we, we forget that he was a prophet. He spoke on behalf of God. In fact, he wrote the five books of the Old Testament that God had given him. God spoke to him and he wrote it down and declared it to God's people. And by the way, Moses declared it all, whether it was good news or bad news. Prophets speak the truth no matter what, whether it's blessings or curses or whether it's hope or judgment. Prophets were anointed by God to proclaim the word to the people, and, and it's through that office that God provides his insight into who he is, and that's how we end up with the Old Testament scriptures. And so the office of the prophet was to make God and his will known, and Christ came into the world to do just that, to make God known. That's why we refer to him as the great prophet. Even, by the way, the Muslims will call him a great prophet. Jesus was the prophet foretold by Moses himself. In Deuteronomy 18, he wrote, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among men from your brothers. It is... It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord, your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord, my God, to see the great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. Jesus is that prophet. He's the fulfillment, by the way, of that very prophecy. In fact, Paul in Hebrews once wrote, long ago in many times in many ways, 
God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the, power of his, by the word of His power. Christ Jesus is the greatest of all prophets, and he came to make God the Father known. He came to reveal the character and the nature of God and his will for us. And Jesus says in John chapter 14, and you know where I'm going. And Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that is enough. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the full expression of God. He reveals to the world who God the Father is. He is the fullest revelation of God and His Word to the world. And all, right? and all believers need Christ the prophet. We all need Him to reveal God to us. In fact, the confession that we hold to in, ch in chapter 8, paragraph 10 says, the number and character of these offices is essential. Right? I want you to listen to this. It says, because we, because we are ignorant... We need his prophetic office. This reveals an important truth about us and our fallen nature. And that is part of our problem is that we're ignorant. And before Christ, before the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and, and changes our hearts, we didn't really know God. We may know him or we may know about him and we may know enough you know, not to have an excuse before him, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1. And we may certainly know his, his character, and we know that what the law requires, and that, and that the law requires death for those who rebel against God. But we don't, we didn't know him in a way that would bring us peace. We didn't know him in a way that would save us. On our own, without Christ, and without the word of God, we didn't really know who God is. We were ignorant. This is why we need Christ to show us the way. This is why we need Jesus to show us how to be saved. This is why Jesus is the word. We need Jesus's prophetic office. We need Jesus to reveal the father to us. We need Jesus to reveal the kingdom of heaven to us. We need Jesus to show us how to be reconciled. Otherwise, we're lost. And so, we need Jesus to be a prophet for us. But we also need him to be the priest too. You see, a priest is someone who is appointed by God to make intercession between God and man. A priest is the, the go-between. And, and, and the word priest in Greek and Hebrew, actually both of those terms carry with them the idea of someone who makes a sacrifice on behalf of someone else. In fact, that's, that's exactly what priests in the Old Testament Levitical system did. They made sacrifices before God for themselves and for God's people. They would, they would sacrifice grain. They would sacrifice wine. They would sacrifice 
a multitude of animals. The most important sacrifice was the sacrifice performed on the Day of Atonement, where once a year there was a sacrifice performed by the high priest, and that after sacrificing the animal and, and, and gathering some of the blood, he would then, one time a year, after making ritual purification for himself, he would dare to enter into the, the holy of holies. He would cross the boundary between man and God, and he would enter into this space, and then he would sprinkle some of this blood on the, the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, and he would sprinkle that blood in order to make atonement for the sins for the nation of Israel, for, for, for God's elect. And this sacrifice demonstrated a couple of important issues. First of all, the horrific nature of sin. Sin required the death of a sacrificial lamb to make atonement. As the Apostle Paul says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. What a, what a startling revelation that is, especially in a world where we just think, man, I just got to say, it's okay, and it's not a big deal anymore. We think that, that forgiveness of sins is really just about God turning a blind eye to what we've done. No, it requires the shedding of blood. Secondly, and most importantly, this sacrifice points to the one who would make the once and for all sacrifice to make atonement. Again, Paul says in Hebrews chapter 10, he says, for since the law has, has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices... There is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible for these sacrifices to permanently make atonement for God's people. In fact, it says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you gave to be prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He says he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified to the offering of the body of Christ once and for all. And every priest stands ready to his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can, be, can never take away sins. But, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool under his feet. For by a single offering, he had perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I mean, being sanctified. Jesus, the great high priest, he is the great high priest because he and only he could be the sacrificial lamb and the priest. And he made final atonement for our sins. The atonement that can bring God and man together. 
We need Jesus the prophet. We need Jesus the priest. Again, as our confession says so clearly, because we are alienated from God and imperfect in the best of our service, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and present us to God as acceptable. You realize that? It is the work of Christ that makes us acceptable to God. It's the work of Christ that makes us acceptable to God. And I want you to understand that right there then should give you hope because it's not you that makes yourself acceptable to God. Can I get an amen to that? Right? It is Christ who makes us acceptable to God. Christ is a great high priest that reconciles us to God through his own life and death and resurrection. Again, as Paul writes, for your sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ the priest makes propitiation by his own blood so that our sins can be washed away and Christ's righteousness is credited to us so that we can stand completely righteous before God. We need Jesus Christ, the high priest. But we also need Christ, the king. The office of the king, the office of the government was given by God to mankind after the fall in order to protect people who live in the kingdom. I know that many of us have a tendency to look with a side eye towards the government. I think rightfully so in some respects. But what you didn't know is that, is that the government and, and kings and emperors were given by God actually for the benefit of people. Kings and emperors and rulers ruled over their subjects to protect them. First, to protect them from their enemies outside the kingdom in order to provide for peace inside the kingdom. This is still one of the responsibilities of governments and leaders today to keep external enemies at bay. And what do we say of leaders who refuse to do that? They're horrible leaders. They're corrupt leaders. They're unjust leaders. We know that one of the primary functions of government and leaders is to protect the people. Kings were also given to rule over, over their subjects in order to protect their subjects from each other by ensuring justice. This is why, by the way, governments were given the rule of, of law. That's why they run the justice system. There are times when citizens of the same nation do bad things to each other, where they harm one another. And it is, it is the government's, it is, it is the king's job to settle these disputes and to punish wrongdoers and ensure that justice is preserved for the whole nation. And what do we say of, of justice systems that fail at that? They're unjust. Kings also ruled over their subjects to protect them from themselves as well cultivating righteousness. Sometimes citizens in, of kingdoms engage in, in activities that are harmful to themselves and to the, to the nation itself. Things like addiction and suicide and, and, and laziness and other self-destructive practices. Governments and kings are there to protect their, their subjects and promote individual righteousness. By the way, when governments begin to to stop requiring a people responsibility for their actions, things de descend into anarchy very quickly. This is why the, the gift of God was given to mankind is to protect them after the fall. 
And throughout history, there have been many kings and many kingdoms and many rulers and many governments, some of them good, some of them very evil. But when you think about those who have led nations, these three things were always what God had appointed them to accomplish, peace, justice, and righteousness. They were appointed to protect the people from enemies outside, to protect people from each other, and to protect people from themselves. That's why we were given God's, they were given by God's sovereign hand the right to create and enforce the law. This is why also Paul encourages us to be submissive to those who lead. It was for the good of the nation. But as we know, <laughs> the earthly kings and rulers and governments, and even now are made up of sinful creatures who are prone to corruption. Those who rule are prone to be corrupted by money and power. I don't think I have to tell you that. And at times, we seem to need someone to protect us from them. But these kings and rulers, nonetheless, were given by God, and like the office of the priesthood, they foreshadow something. They point forward to something. They point forward to our need the need that we have for Christ. We need a righteous king. And Christ came to be our great and perfect king. He is the great fulfillment of that office. And he can and will keep us safe. And we desperately need him in that capacity. In fact, the confession states it this way, because we are hostile and utterly unable to return to God, and so that we can be rescued and made secure in our spiritual, from our spiritual enemies, we need his kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, sustain, deliver, and preserve us for his heavenly kingdom. We need Christ to be our king. We need his rule in our lives. We need him to subdue our rebellious hearts. Reminds me of the hymn. Prone to wander, now I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, take and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. We need him to, to grow us in obedience to him. We need desperately Jesus as the king. And, and that is one of the primary reasons why he came. In fact, turn with me to Mark chapter 11. beginning in verse 1. It reads, Now when they drew near Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it. And... We'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found the colt tied at the door outside of the, on the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, Why are you, what are you doing untying the colts? And they, they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches, and they had cut that they had cut in the fields. And those who went before and those who were following were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our 
Father David, Hosanna in the highest. This is called the triumphal entry. What's interesting is this was highly unusual because people didn't, especially at this time of year, didn't ride into Jerusalem. People walked in Jerusalem. They walked in in reverence, and here Jesus is riding into Jerusalem in a fashion that signals that something special had just happened. And what he was signaling is that he indeed came to be the king. Now, when you look at the Gospels and compare them, and you will find that all of the Gospels were written for different purposes and written to different audiences, and they had different themes. Matthew, by the way, was written to Jews in order to, to persuade them that Christ is the Messiah. When you read Matthew, that's what you'll see. You'll see a lot of, of Jewish theology in that. And then um, Mark was written to demonstrate that Jesus was the servant of God and prophesied about, that he was the son of God himself. In fact, Jesus refers to himself in that gospel as the son of man. And then Luke was written to a Greek audience to, to help them to see that Jesus Christ is the perfect man. And then John obviously was written to demonstrate that Jesus is, in fact, God in the flesh. That's why he begins with, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later on he says, the Word became flesh. Now, the thing that we need to realize is that, that all of these different audiences and all these different purposes, the Gospels, they don't always cover the exact same events. They all have some variance in the things that they actually spend time covering. For example, only Matthew and Luke cover the birth of Christ. Mark and John don't even mention it, right? And, and John is the only of the Gospels to deal with the resurrection of Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, and the, the fact that Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Those are really important stories, but only John made a point to cover those things. Each of the Gospels has its own priorities, and not every one of the events covered is covered by all the Gospels, but, but there are some events that are so important and central to the, to the story and the narrative of, of Christ and his Gospel that they, they spend time to deal with. Every Gospel addresses the arrest, trial, and crucifixion, and ultimately the resurrection of Christ. Every one of the Gospels spends time on that because it's central to our faith. Well, another event that every gospel writer makes a point to cover and spend time on is this right here, the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. Every single gospel addresses the, this event, and this should cause us then to ask the question, why is that? Why would they all come together on this one point? Well, it's important because this is a, a defining moment in the ministry, in the life of Christ. Jesus coming to Jerusalem, declaring himself to be the king, is central to the gospel and the story of the Christian faith. First of all, this fulfilled specific prophecy about Jesus confirming his identity. It, it was it fulfilled specific prophecy about who he is and what he was doing there. Zechariah 9.9, centuries before, said this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Bring your Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This 
event fulfilled specifically words that were written about Christ that people were looking forward to. This event fulfilled prophecy to the letter. The king that was promised to come had come. And secondly, this event declared that Jesus himself was acknowledging what was foretold about him, what people had thought or hoped would be true of him. The thing that we need to realize is before this moment, all the way up to that point, Jesus had been like not answering the question about him being the king. He had been waiting not to to make that known. In fact, there were times that people wanted to grab him and make him king, and he resisted that because the time wasn't right. But this was the moment that Jesus was declaring, I am the king, the one that you have been waiting for. The third is this event indicates that people recognize that Jesus was what he was there to do. At least they partly understood why Jesus came. He came to be the king. And there was much celebration. Jesus, it said, as he rode on the donkey, they were shouting that he's not just some prophet, that he's not just a priest that comes makes intercession between God and men. He is the sovereign king. And this story... This truth is pivotal for us. We need to recognize how important this is. We need to understand this. Jesus came to be the king. This triumphal entry acknowledges that. It's it's actually a picture of, of Solomon's own coronation ceremony. This is the reason why the city was electric. Because they were waiting for the king. They were waiting for the Messiah to come. They were waiting for for the king to bring peace to the kingdom. They were waiting for him to bring justice and righteousness. This event demonstrates that the king had come. And that king is Jesus. But ultimately, there were two problems that arose. The first one is that most Jewish people thought that that, that the king was coming to be a local national king, that he was simply going to be the king of the nation of Israel. He came to be king of the nation in order to remove the tyranny of Rome. They thought that that he would lead a rebellious cause in order to push the Romans out. Not to mention, they thought that, that finally... Jerusalem would be a political powerhouse again in the world. They didn't realize that he was actually coming to be the king of the universe. Not to mention the kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate was not a political kingdom. It was the kingdom of God. And so the first problem is that they had a limited local view of God and his kingdom and Christ and his kingdom. The second issue is the nation of Israel politically and religiously and even personally, ultimately rejected Christ as the king. They rejected him. Jesus comes into the city. If you think about this, what, a, what an odd turn of events. He comes into the city with shouts of Hosanna, right? And then within a few days, all you hear is shouts of crucify him, crucify him. The Jews and the nation of Israel rejected Christ's kingship. That's why, by the way, this is why it's important we understand that that the Pharisees, they said to Pilate these words, we have no king but Caesar. They didn't even say God. They said Caesar. The nation of Israel had rebelled against God himself and denied his rightful rule over them. 
Now, incidentally, one of the things that we need to see is because they denied Jesus as their king, they then ultimately denied them as the great high priest, and then they ultimately denied him as the prophet. You see, you can't have Jesus as a prophet and a priest if you don't have him as the king. I know some people don't like to think in those terms, but I'm going to tell you right now, if Jesus is not your king, he can't be your prophet or priest either. The thing that many people don't realize today or don't want to acknowledge or talk about is the fact that, that because of Israel, because they denied him as the king, that was the final rebellion that actually brought the curse of the law upon the nation, and that was the catalyst for God to pour out his judgment and wrath upon them and destroy the city of Jerusalem. They rejected Christ, and Jesus pronounced judgment, and that judgment king. That's why Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. One of the most horrific events in all of human history. We look back, and we don't realize how horrific that was, but millions of people lost their lives in horrific ways. That city was, was beset by a siege, and people were, were eating one another in order to stay alive. It was horrific. This is why the temple was torn down, where there was no other stone on top of each other, as Jesus himself said would happen. And no one has rebuilt it to this day. That's why the Jews were scattered among the nations. It's because they denied Jesus as their king. Now, now why, why would that be important to us today? It's important to us because as a Christian, it's easy to accept Jesus as the prophet. It is, right? We, we love the fact that Jesus came to reveal God the Father to us. We love that. We love the fact that Jesus came to show God's love and, and his will. We love the fact that, that, that what we see in Christ is God's kindness and his mercy. And by the way, anyone who calls themselves by the name of, of Christ loves that about him. Even those who are theologically liberal love the fact that Jesus came to reveal the Father. Even if it just means to reveal how we're supposed to live and treat one another. But the problem is many people become one-dimensional in their thinking and they think that's the only reason why Jesus came. Jesus only came to reveal the Father. That Jesus only came to show us how we to live and treat people and as if that's the sum total of his ministry in the world. Everybody loves Jesus the prophet. As we said before, the, the Muslims love Jesus the prophet. And, and we love Jesus the prophet as he reveals the Father. And we love Jesus the great high priest. It's really easy to love Jesus for that. It's really easy to love him for that. I mean, people are genuinely, if they're in the faith, if they truly are believers, they love this about Jesus, that he is the once and for all sacrifice that atoned for our sins, past, present, and future. Because of him, we can be reconciled to God. We adore him for that. We love him. We sing about his sacrifice. We sing about his mercy and grace. We, we love the fact that Jesus shed his blood for our pardon. We talk about it. We sing about it. We preach about it. We revel in that truth. We take comfort in that. The substitutionary atonement of Christ and his work is the greatest of all doctrines ever conceived in the mind of God. That Jesus died to save us is a glorious truth of the gospel. And it is that basis on which we come to the throne. And, and so all true Christians love that truth. We love Jesus as our great high priest. But then when it comes to Jesus make, being king, if I can just be honest, this is where a lot of people begin to struggle. Because what does it mean for him to be king? 
It means that he is the absolute sovereign Lord over everything. And he has complete rule over us. That it means that it is our duty and privilege to surrender to him. And to grow in our obedience to him. And not just on Sunday. Not just the Sunday part of our lives. And not just the, the religious part of our lives, but all of our life. That includes our work life, our family life, our community life, our friendship life, our, our financial life, our private life, our internet life. We are to surrender to God as the king of everything. He is to rule in every part of our lives. As, as Paul said, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. The, the lordship, the kingship of Christ is a truth that is essential to our faith. You have to hear me on that. And, and I know there will be people who push back because they don't want to hear this. They don't want to acknowledge this. They, they love Jesus the prophet. They love Jesus the priest. They love Jesus, Savior, Redeemer. And they will say, Jesus is my personal Savior, but they don't love Jesus as the King and the Lord. In fact, there's a whole system of theology in America today called anti-lordship salvation. There's actually a name for it, yes. Taught at a prominent seminary in the United States. Because people struggle with the idea that Jesus is the absolute king. Now, why is that? Why do people struggle with Jesus being king? Well, first of all, I think it's just in our nature to be rebellious. We don't want anyone to have authority over us. Especially as Americans, we want to be independent. We want to be autonomous. We want to do what we want to do, and we don't want nobody telling us how to do it. By the way, this is what happened in the garden. Mankind wanted to live according to his own will, and that rebellion was passed down to us. That's why we struggle with the authority of the government in our lives. That's why we struggle with the authority of our employers and supervisors. This is why children struggle against the authority of their parents, and all you moms know exactly what I'm talking about. Those kids are struggling with your authority because that's in their nature to do so from the fall. And by the way, you didn't have to teach them to do that, right? They came pre-wired like that. That's why kids just struggle with the authority of their teachers. I can tell you the truth about that. And they struggle with the authority of coaches and principals, and that's why we struggle with being under the authority of church leadership too. Even people who call themselves Christians, you want to see people get really worked up and, and push back on authority? Tell someone that calls himself a Christian, but really doesn't belong to a church, that it's God's will that they are be a part of a church family under the authority of pastors and elders in a local church and watch them lose their mind and say, no, 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 it's not. Even though that's what the, the, the scriptures clearly teach, people don't want to be under authority. It's in our nature to resist authority. And again, many people will love Jesus as prophet and priest, but they don't want him to be the king. That's the first one. Secondly, is because throughout the last, I think, few centuries, if you study church history, there's just been this heartfelt but misguided attempt to try to reach people, right, in a way that has caused Christian church, the, the church to build a culture and a church 
and a theology that seeks to give people what they want rather than what they need. That's why the American church has been dominated by unbiblical ideas like the seeker-sensitive movement. I understand the motivation behind that. We want people to come to Jesus. We don't want anything to get in the way people come to Jesus. But because of the seeker-sensitive movement is the idea that the reason people don't come to church is because we're just not appealing to them enough. We don't appeal to their tastes and their wants and desires. And, you know, we, we talk about hard subjects, so we're going to soften that up. And, and that's why Sunday services in so many different places look more like concerts and TED Talks rather than a worship service aimed at worshiping and glorifying the risen king. Because they're trying to appeal to man and not God. There's this idea that, that the church, there's another idea like the church growth movement that was really focused, especially in the late 20th, early uh, 21st century on fostering church growth. And the idea is if it works and people are coming, then it must be of God. The idea is that what's most important is how many attenders do you have? How many baptisms are you getting and how much money you're making? Those are the metrics that people really cared about rather than actually discipleship and maturity in the, in the believers that are there. And so this, this pragmatism became about, about, this a culture of worship and discipleship that was built more on emotions and, and experiences rather than the truth and the doctrines of the faith. And then that result has been a theologically anemic church where people gather to experience Jesus in order to feel something during their time of worship rather than growing in their understanding of who God is and embracing the truth that Jesus, you know, though he is our best friend and though he is our, our rescuer, he is also our king. The church is filled full of people who think that God is, is truly being worshipped because people are lifting their hands. And, and people think that God is being worshipped because we're emotional when we sing. People think that God is being worshipped because, because they're getting something out of worship, because, because we think that worship is about how we feel. Many people think that emotional experiences are the measure of whether or not God is being worshipped. But, but really the measure of worship isn't our emotional experience it's a question, are we really being conformed in the image of Christ, including our submission to his authority? The true measure of worship is, are we submitting ourselves and our lives to Christ? Are we living for him? Is it all about him? Are we growing in reverence and obedience? Now, hear me. I think it's important that we're emotionally connected. I personally love it when we sing songs that move me to tears and my heart melts in me. But that's not the measure of whether or not I'm growing in Christ. The true measure of worship is, are we living for Christ as the King? But what we see in the church at large is not that. It's an overemphasis on one or two offices. The emphasis on him being prophet and priest People will affirm those things, but then turn around and live in rebellion to his kingship. People don't want to, to, want to think of a life redeemed by Christ as, as being different from the world. People don't want to think that, 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 that if you confess Christ on Sunday, your life shouldn't be defined by your sin the rest of the week. 
people who think that you can love Christ but hate the church. By the way, there are people that are like that. You realize that, right? People say, I love Jesus, I just hate the church. That's like saying to your best friend, I love you, but I hate your wife. People who think that the Christian life is about their personal feelings and emotions rather than what the Word of God reveals. And so many people, because of their rebellious nature and because of the, of the church, have adapted to try to please man. They end up rejecting Christ as king. But hear me. We need desperately all of these things from Jesus. We need Jesus to be the prophet and show us God and what he wants from us. We need Jesus, the high priest, to make atonement for our sins because, brothers and sisters, we can't do it. We need him to make intercession for us before the Father because we're going to continually fall down. And we need Christ as king who rules over us for his glory and our ultimate good. We need him to give us peace, justice, and righteousness. I'll be so bold to say that if you reject Christ as king, by default, you're rejecting him ultimately as prophet and priest. So what do, what do we do with this now that we're coming face to face with this larger growing picture of Christ? That we see that he is our mediator and what that means for us, that he is the, pro, the prophet that reveals God and he is the priest that is our go-between and that he is the king. What does that mean for us? Well, ultimately, it means, first of all, for those who are not in Christ, they need to repent and believe the gospel. We, church, need to be calling people to repent and believe in Christ because there is no other hope in the world besides him. Secondly, we need, I think, to, to really be mindful of what it means for him to be king and then just submit ourselves into his hand and commit ourselves. And understand, we are not going to do this perfectly. We still have a sin nature that wells up in us and wars against our spirit. It happens. Paul talks about that in Romans. But we can still, day-to-day, -day, die to ourselves. We can, day-to-day, -day, come back to that place and surrender again into his hand. That when we fall down on our face and we, we actually sin, rather than running from God and trying to hide from his presence, we need to turn to him and say, Lord Jesus, save me. Help me to overcome this. Right? You're the king. I want to submit to you. Help me to submit to you. But we need to commit in our minds and our hearts to grow in that submission to his Lordship. And then we need to commit to, then, to the mission that our king has given us. Brothers and sisters, the king has given you all a commission. Right? <laughs> I can hear it now. Some people say, well, well, pastor, I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't gifted with the gift of evangelism. I was gifted with the gift of, you know, of, of comfort or... I was gifted with the gift of like, you know, cleaning floors. I wasn't really gifted with the gift of evangelism. I understand that. There are evangelists, but we are all called to evangelism. We are all called, every one of us, to be a part of this mission to share the hope of Christ with the world. And our king beckons us to take part in that because there are people that you have in your life that you know that no one else is going to be able to reach. God has positioned you uniquely and specially in a place so that you can touch those people's lives. And the call then would be is to grow in obedience in this area. And praise the Lord, he didn't say you had to do this perfectly, right? This is one of those areas that we can all agree to then pray for each other to grow in obedience to our King. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead 
a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.